Hi, I'm Mohit Kirk. I am the founder and CEO of Oloid. There is a common investing thesis in the VC world called India for the World. It means investing in companies that are building in India for global markets, spending in rupees and earning in dollars. One of the pioneers of this thesis is a company called Mindtickle. Mindtickle was founded in Pune in 2009 by a bunch of engineers who were pretty clueless about business. But they kept at it and this is the story of how they found market fit, how they scaled to the US market and became a unicorn. In this two-part episode of the Founder Thesis podcast, your host Akshay Dutt speaks to Mohit Garg about his journey of founding Mindtickle and scaling it up in the US as an enterprise SaaS business. You will also find part two of this conversation on the same feed, which covers Mohit's journey of building his second startup, Oloid. So I had uh, multiple offers, all in software. I took up a job in a company in Chennai called Future Software. I felt like systems programming is where. I had a lot of interest. So building uh, not application software. And I ended up building software for routers and switches, networking and protocols. Tell me about that uh, journey, you know, from first job to entrepreneurship when you started buying pickles. In those days, you almost had to earn the right to start a business because there was no funding available. And then I also wanted to pursue master's. So even for that, I had to do some savings and find some way of funding my postgraduate education. So as I was working at Future Software, I started preparing for my master's in electrical engineering at Stanford. At uh, Stanford, I took courses in Dubbly and one of the professors, uh, Dr. Paul Raj, he was starting a startup. So he offered a couple of us in the department because he knew like we are... Uh, just moved from India. We don't have a lot of resources. So ended up doing my master's with no loan, right? Ended up taking two and a half years to do my master's because I was working full time. Then I got into the startup world. This is early 2000s and uh, worked with that company. That company did amazingly well. They were building wireless technology called WiMAX. Uh, the company got acquired by Intel and uh, Ended up working with Intel for a short while. And then uh, another company, L3 Communications, then acquired the assets of the company because of the dot-com burst. Uh, and I ended up working with a large company called L3 Communications. But that's when I realized working with a large company is not my thing. So within a few months, switched to another startup called Aruba Networks. And uh, I had set a benchmark for me, which is I'll go to US for five years, gain an experience, and go back to India and start my business. That was my original plan. Like, Came upon eight years, I said, was now I should stick to my plan, otherwise I'll be here forever. And that's when I had been hearing about ISB as uh, an institute which was being built to global standards. And some of my friends who had an MBA, they advised me and they said, you'll spend a lot of money on US MBA. Because in my mind, again, I was still op operating with some very you know, high-level assumptions that to be a business person, you need to have a business degree. And uh, I said, I want to get an MBA. But uh, given that I wanted to build a business in India, 
I felt ISB will be giving me the best of both worlds. And then uh, 2005, I moved back to India, uh, basically said bye-bye to US. That was my plan to just be in India from that point onwards and went to pursue a one-year uh, MBA program at ISB Hyderabad. So while at ISB, I was very clear that I am not going to go for the coveted jobs of consulting and investment banking. Did apply for an exchange program and ended up going to Kellogg School of Business as an exchange student from ISB just for the experience. And that's where at one of the socials, I met the consulting partners at a consulting firm called Diamond Consultants in Chicago. I was doing the exchange program at Kellogg at Chicago and this uh, partner in the consulting firm, he brainwashed me in one hour. So he showed me on consulting in that one hour. And then he said, next week we have interviews at Kellogg. Uh, I'll recommend you, you put in your resume. So I did the same, got interviewed at Kellogg, got a consulting offer. So almost four years, more than four years of uh, management consulting at a consulting firm in Chicago. Uh, yeah, I can see PwC also on your LinkedIn. Yeah, so in 2010, PwC acquired Diamond Consultants. Diamond Consultants was a boutique consulting firm. I enjoyed it because it was just 500 or so consultants. We were doing very high quality work. And as a small consulting firm, uh, we were very focused on quality and not scale. And then once PwC acquired, obviously it was a massive cultural shift. Uh, the company was operating at massive scale. And I could see that the experience is not going to be the same. Right. But at this point, I felt I had checked all the boxes for me to take the plunge. Having earned consulting salary for four months, it was pretty rewarding. I had a war chest to say, I can now you know, be two years, three years without a salary and it's okay. I, I can survive handsomely while being an entrepreneur. And you were still on an H1B visa? Back then, if you had a master's and you applied for a green card, that was pretty quick. So the wait times were not that long. So before I went to ISB, I had already uh, taken a green card in the US. And that was an option value to say, okay, you know, uh, even if I have to come back, travel, everything will be easy. So at ISB, I made some of my uh, like lifelong friends, some very, very close friends. One of those uh, people is Krishna, Krishna Depura, who was my co-founder at uh, Mindtickle. And at ISB itself, we had sort of, made a pact that we will do a startup together. We had done a lot of business plans together. In fact, the three, four of us were, you know, branded as, you know, they want to found companies, they have a plan. Uh, so we were part of that pack. And at least Krishna and I kept in touch. And uh, we always used to talk about what's happening in his life and does he feel ready so that was leading up to okay you know let's start figuring out the team let's figuring out which area let's do some market research so I actually did my return to india second time and packed my bags and moved to pune uh, where krishna was already there krishna had two other colleagues of his at the startup he's working with called popmatic deepak and nishant who were also very good friends. So they also came along and uh, all four of us, we co-founded together. So we all had done some experiments. Or for like kids, so like for what segment? 
Yeah, so the experiments we ran in 2010 were around using gamified learning for general knowledge, for uh, learning about history. We ran a gamified contest around Indian history. So we had a hypothesis that we'll build something about gamified learning. And we didn't know which segment, whether it's going to be kids, whether it's going to be corporate. So we did experiments in all those areas. At that point, we felt with kids, there was so much academic focus. We didn't want to build any programs for like, uh, you know, eighth grade mathematics and how to crack boards or how to crack J. That didn't excite us. We believed in holistic learning. And we did our own primary research and we felt like parents weren't willing to pay for holistic education and learning, right? They'll pay for cracking the exam. And that didn't excite us. So after doing some initial experiments around B2C learning, gamified learning, like we still have, you know, Facebook pages we had created, which have 40,000 followers even today, right? Uh, and we were getting like, you know, some of the gamified uh, programs that we created, Facebook games that we created, like they used to get like 15,000 concurrent users. So we had a lot of engagement, but monetization wasn't clear to us. It, it seemed like, uh, building this concept for an enterprise B2B uh, will have the grounding of a successful business. Otherwise, it'll end up being a hobby. So then that's the time when we actually built some form of a pitch deck. Yeah, when is this uh, when you decided to pivot to B2B? Yeah, so very early on, I would say in the first year itself, uh, you know, we were still not incorporated. We were still doing experiments. So I think... And who was uh, coding? Like if you made a Facebook game and all that, you you guys, like there were four of you, so all of you knew how to code and all? Or like what? Yeah, so Deepak and Nishant, they, you know, are very, very versatile, you know, from a technology standpoint. Uh, Nishant is a great designer. Deepak is multifaceted. He you know, is everything from an architect to a programmer uh, and now, you know, very strong CTO. And we also had a couple of early team members that we brought on board, you know, very, very early career, very motivated. Those engineers have done amazingly well. So with about six of us, uh, we rented a small little bungalow and we used to hang out there and used to code and we used to do wireframing of uh, gamified learning games and we started pitching this concept to uh, hr departments in bangalore so we said uh, initially we pitched team engagement we said we will do online team building using our games so because our games are uh, we looked at the demographics because our games were seeing more and more of participation from uh, early professionals Right. So also factor of the network, like Krishna had an amazing uh, network in Microsoft and Pubmatic and the word was spreading around around these games and they were Facebook games. So the sharing was happening in those Facebook groups, uh, a lot of posts. And these were like essentially trivia games. Trivia games, mostly general knowledge trivia games. So we, that's what we showed to these HR uh, departments said, check the audience, check the engagement see how much passion people bring. We had discussion boards and people were doing discussions around trivia even at 2 a.m., right? 
So he said, uh, imagine we could do this for your employees, for employee engagement. We got some earlier doctors who got excited and Moby was one of our very earlier doctor customers who said, okay, we'll give it a shot. Let's do a team engagement game. We did that for HP, for Yahoo. And one thing was very clear that the user engagement was very high. Consistently, whatever we were building, all users were asking for more. They're asking the HR department is the next time we're going to have an activity like this. And that's when the name MindTickle also came about, right? This is December 20. 11 is when we incorporated the company. And by then, we had clarity that it's about gamified learning, right? Uh, by then, we were convinced it's going to be a B2B company. One of our classmates, uh, Neera Jarora, ended up being an initial angel investor. When we shared the idea with him, he got pretty excited. We brought in Amit Somani, who runs Prime Angels now. Uh, he was the second angel investor. So... That's where the story started taking off. Very soon after, uh, Excel India gave us a seat check. They said, uh, you know, we like the team. We know there is something there. What you guys are doing, yearly user engagement is very high. We, we want to back you as an early team. Go figure it out. We'll give you some funds to go figure it out. So now we've got some investor money. So now we've got to get serious and deliver on some objectives. And I would say... Uh, the resources available today are maybe 1,000 times more than were available in 2011. So back then, we you know, had limited uh, access within India. Everything you're consuming was from U.S. blogs and U.S. founders. We started consuming those. And I think that's when started understanding the 101s of what a tech startup is. So it was a fast learning curve, right? Starting to understand, okay, what we are doing putting stuff on AWS is actually called a cloud-based SaaS service. So even like that thing, it wasn't like a household name. SaaS, now everybody knows, right? Just putting some nomenclature around the category of business, what are we building, enterprise software, uh, building something initially as a HR software, understanding what is the ecosystem, right? Also understanding how should we price it and charge it, right? Because initially we started looking at a event-based pricing. Okay, you know, in Mopi, do a team engagement event or a new hire event, online event, and you give us a per event. After we got funded, started to understand, you know, met with people like Shekhar Kirani, who had just Freshworks was funded, I think within plus minus two months of Pintical getting funded with Axel India. So Shekhar started sharing all the insights about, okay, how is or the Zoho people thinking about their business, right? Go meet with Girish, pick up his brains and understand because he's further along in the curve of understanding how this model is cracked. So with the Axel Network, we started getting access to learning resources, meeting people who were much more educated and savvy and uh, also started figuring out geography. You know, that whole romantic model of India is my market to now understanding you're an enterprise software. There is very little success to be had as an India-only focused enterprise software or SaaS company. Right, pretty much all companies look at US as a market. Right, so you know, started with that patriotic zeal of building something for India to then understanding, okay, now the responsibility towards delivering value to investors. They can't do that until you crack the US market. So then, once we had an uh, you know initial product, initial product was a new hire onboarding product. So we actually productized it. 
what we were doing as team engagement, you know, sort of one time and done type of uh, gamified learning. We started going into recurring learning model as new hires come into the organization, how you're educating the new hires about their company, their product, uh, their competition, everything they have to learn as a new hire to get an understanding of uh, the company's uh, must-know information. We were delivering a gamified manner. So that had decent uptake. And this uh, this was like text plus uh, quizzes, like some text information and some then multiple choice uh, questions and you select one and with some animations when you select the right answer. Like, well, what was it like? So we had done pretty much from day one, everything visual, right? To give an example, one of the team engagement games that Mindtickle was still doing until a couple years back, maybe they're still doing today, was one of those classic games we invented called High Fly. So High Fly was a trivia game, very visual, where you keep on answering questions and your balloon rises and different teams, they have hot air balloons and they're competing, right? Whose balloon reaches the top the fastest. So there was always a visual journey component to what we were building, the games and gamified learning we were building, right? Uh, And then we had done a lot of thinking around different formats of games. It shouldn't be MCQ. MCQ was the most boring format, right? Let's find Hangman. Let's find, you know, fill in the blanks. And like we had created a lot of these. See, our DNA was product thinking. Our DNA was build once and reuse. So we had created frameworks about everything, right? Everything was a journey. Then you had journey, you had a background. You could have the background of, you know, a mountain that you're ascending, right? You could have the background of a nice bicycle ride like Tour de France, right? So we had created this product where you could create custom background with the company's logo and upload an image, a JPEG, and it tailored the experience to that company's new hires. It didn't feel like it was a one-size-fits-all, right? Feel like that company's brand, colors, and everything. It was very easy to customize. made it very customizable. And this uh, the... The questions were uh, put in by the company HR or, or was it like done by you for them? Yeah, so we started creating frameworks and saying typically onboarding has these five different things about the company, its history. So we would give them a template and ask them to fill a template. We had templatized the whole model uh, and then soon enough we made it self-service whereas you put in the questions, you put in the answers, you do the scoring, right? Everything became like a uh, you know, what we know today as a templatized uh, SaaS software, right, with an admin portal. And what were you charging companies, like, per person onboarded? So every new hire batch, we would make, like, a you know, $1,000 for every batch of, you know, whatever, 50 people who were coming in. And uh, how did you start selling in the U.S.? This you're talking of U.S. pricing, right? So we did have breakthrough with U.S. companies with offices in India. So everything from Yahoo to, you know, HP, like multinationals, multinational technology companies is where we had our initial traction. And then we went to the U.S. counterparts and said, oh, your Bangalore office had a lot of success with this. So that's how we started penetrating uh, U.S. market. And as we were also getting more savvy about understanding how to build a meaningful business, we needed to be a line item in the budget. So we started quantifying are we able to get onboarding done faster? Are employees becoming productive faster? Can we introduce product training? Can we introduce sales training? Can we introduce 
not just about my company's basics done in four hours to now meaningful modules, right? And we started to have business value discussions saying, okay, we'll price to value and talk to HR about business value and time to onboarding. But we realized HR was not the buyer who thought like that and bought like that, at least back in the day, right? Whereas the sales teams who were using our product, they were very excited to engage in a discussion about saying, okay, my sales hire takes four months to be productive. If you can shave off a month from it, I can quantify that. I think that was a light bulb moment for us. The moment we felt like we could quantify the impact into dollars, now we can build a meaningful business. So we started moving more and more towards sales-oriented learning programs, uh, sales onboarding. We put a lot of energy into understanding the sales persona. What is the sales hire? What what are the different programs that they learn, right? There is... Uh, sales techniques that they have to learn. They have to learn about competition, pricing. So those modules that started about companies' history, vision, they started morphing into uh, product differentiation, competition, pricing. So a lot of energy started going into pursuing that persona from a new hire perspective. And then we said, why only new hires? The product was uh, not imparting knowledge as such, but it was doing... uh like a fun ways of assessing knowledge and that assessment in a way also reinforced the knowledge. Yeah. So we actually uh, added modules for even delivering the content. So we started investing into abilities to create content directly, uh, be able to import Google slides or import PowerPoint and then later on import videos, embed uh, video links. So it started taking more and more the format of a full learning platform. It was gradually morphing towards becoming like an LMS, but uh, a, a more gamified LMS than what would have been around those days. Yeah, I would say that we actually got the award for best uh, gamified learning platform. Uh, I think it must have been 2013, right? So from a gamification standpoint, we were way ahead of the curve. But then we also realized that LMS is not something we want to be. We want to be more than LMS, right? We want to be a platform which is driving value. So that's why today it's called a sales readiness platform because learning is a small part of it, right? As we started understanding this persona, just knowing my company's product and being able to you know, rattle off my company's features doesn't close a deal. So what closes the deal? What makes us new hire successful? What makes a salesperson achieve quota. We started to understand that there are many frameworks around this, right? The frameworks around uh, how is this person able to communicate value. So we introduced the ability for new hires to record themselves like I'm speaking with you, start the recording on their laptop, record a video and submit it. And the managers can review it and give them feedback, right? We called it missions. So it went from trivia-based learning to sort of gamified e-learning to now learning which impacts outcomes, makes salespeople productive and effective sellers, right? Making the best videos. So if I was, let's say, a sales team of 70 people, there are three star sellers, right? Their videos are available for me to play and learn from, right? So peer-to-peer learning became a very important part of the platform, right? 
Then we did integration with platforms like salesforce.com. And now content could be tied to what type of deals am I selling? Am I selling in pharma? Am I selling in manufacturing? So then the videos and content related to pharma case studies will become available to me. So a little bit of content management feature started coming into it. What uh, what question here? Uh, how did this uh, content library get built? Uh, so this you're saying is like user-generated content, like the learners would at the time of uh, when a company signs up, then everyone goes through the module and they submit their videos. Uh, and uh, uh, those videos which people submit uh, as part of the assessment, that gets added to the content bank. Yeah, so we realized that we can't rely on just company-provided content, right? We need to invest into user-generated content and crowdsourcing of content. So exactly to your point, I may be sales hire number 431, right? But there are 430 people who were hired before me. Of those 430 people, some of the videos must have been really good and spectacular. So it doesn't have to be people who joined with me in my batch, but historically best examples need to be highlighted. So there was a voting system, there was a grading system, there was a rating system. There was ability to boil up the best piece of content that drives success, which are good examples to learn from. So we, we invested in several principles. We had discussion boards where new hires could ask questions and there could be meaningful discussion. So we started with this notion of, uh, you know, we used to call it Sokamo, which is social gamified mobile. So we tried to coin a word Sogamo learning, right? So at this point, you know, we had cracked the code of learning. We knew that in online learning, we are the champs. What we are starting to realize is we are more than learning. How, how do those case study videos get in? Uh, because you're collecting videos as part of uh, uh, onboarding journey for a new customer, right? Like when there would be some questions and as an answer to the question you record, like say communicating value, you give an example. But how does that, how do, how do the case studies enter the system? So today, developing success stories or case studies is a very formal process in organizations, right? Because sales enablement, sales enablement, you can say is the company setting up their salespeople to, for success is sales enablement. And how do you set your salespeople with successes? The first thing is you have to deliver a compelling product and value proposition. You have to deliver a pricing model that is attractive and it's compelling. And you have to now deliver narratives with the salespeople can use. Right? So narrative is not just a pitch. right? It's not just about saying my product is better and so forth. It's about we have worked with customers like you and they have been successful. So that's a case study. So today there's a standard process in organizations where customer success teams, they are rewarded and compensated for making their customers referenceable. When you make a customer referenceable, they'll either do a G2 crowd review for you, or if they are even more intimate with you, they'll give you a video testimonial of some sort, right? And then you also have processes, best companies also have processes where as soon as a salesperson closes a deal, they will record a win story and say, I sold to the CIO, I had a three-month sales cycle, we had this type of evaluation, we were competing against this competitor because we had this ability to respond to this customer's business needs, have this feature, we won against this competitor. So all of these now studying packaged as codified learning, as videos, 
And now in our platform, we had the ability to import them and boil them up at the moment of need, right? So we also came up with a lot of interesting taglines saying, preparing sales trips for the moment of truth. Moment of truth is in front of a customer. So how do you prepare them? You prepare them with the right content, right learning, right narratives. It's called command of the message, command of the sale. There's a lot of frameworks around sales effectiveness. So all of those we incorporated into our platform. It became much, much more than an LMS. This data was like already labeled. You, you didn't have to work around labeling it uh, like in, in order to identify which video should be shown when that, that labels are important, right? That is where you build a valuable company, right? Because now you're taking all of this, you know, sort of I'm summarizing in five minutes for you. But all of this institutional knowledge of what drives sales success, right? Our early customers were Nutanix, Cloudera, AppDynamics. These companies had the best sales teams in the US SaaS ecosystem. So working with their sales enablement leaders, working with their sales training teams, working with their sales leaders and understanding what drives sales success got codified as templates in our platform. So now if a new company who's you know, earlier in their journey or doesn't have that high caliber salespeople, they have templatization of best practices from best in the breed. So our customers actually helped us become smarter, right? We were not sales experts, right? But we had worked with high quality sales teams as customers. And we were smart enough to absorb what they were telling us and make them features in a product, make them templates. So essentially you are making sales best practices available as a subscription to companies. Yes, we implemented all the best practices in a templatized manner for organizations to take advantage of. Give me some examples of what kind of features allowed companies who did not follow best practices to start following them. Give me an example of some product features which help salespeople to become uh, more effective. Like one, of course, you've told me like the Salesforce integration that you know, serving up content. Uh, what else? Yeah. There's another I mentioned which is about being able to record yourself and get feedback, that is a very effective tool for a new salesperson, right? Because when you are joining a new company, having the right narrative about how to even do a basic description of what is the company about, right? Why is this differentiated? Why is it better versus competition for a certain set of customers? Who are some examples of uh, companies who are using the product successfully? Some of those basic narratives Fine-tuning those narratives without putting them through a human process in a classroom, right? Doing it at their own pace. I think the next generation sellers really resonated with that because prior to that, the old generation sellers were sitting in a classroom and doing pitch practice. Being able to do it on my computer in my own time, uh, I, I think unlocked a lot of value. So that, you know, we used to call it missions, right? Uh, pitch practice. That was a very, very useful feature our customers took advantage of. Uh, like now, my article has features where their integration with Zoom and other recording software, where AI would analyze the meeting and then you would get data. Okay. So, like the, the live uh, sales pitch is getting recorded and analyzed. Right. So, conversational AI, where now you can do assessment of what percentage of the time did the Customer speak, what percentage of time did the salesperson speak, right? How many times was 
uh, a competitor mentioned, right? How long was the pricing discussion, right? Uh, the opportunities are endless, right? You can do emotion analysis. There are opportunities to also start providing uh, prompted content based on the conversational AI. You are in a meeting and then uh, AI can prompt you on content that would be useful or you know references to case studies or customers that would be useful. Okay, got it. So uh, you were uh, in Pune when you started uh how did you land up in the U.S. then? So after we realized that we have to succeed in U.S. as a market, uh, 2013, we already had customers in India, multinationals in India who were giving us referrals to speak to their U.S. counterparts. So I started uh, making trips in U.S. to meet with these companies and meet the U.S. teams. So I did like two or three trips in that year, 2012, 2013 timeframe. And then I think then I ended up doing seven months in the US uh, because there was like so much of uh, sales discovery that we had to do. As we were moving specifically towards the sales uh, enablement market, we realized there's a lot of customer discovery to be done. So I spent seven months, my family was at Pune and I had a child who was just born. So it was just not working out from a personal standpoint, being away with a very young child. So uh, my firstborn was seven months old when we decided to pack our bags and go to US so the family could be united. Because it was very clear to me that uh, one of the co-founders, whoever is driving the revenue side of the business, uh, will have to be close to the customers, especially because it's a new category, new product, and new customer. And we don't have any proxy for that in India, right? If we built a product with Indian customers, this will not meet the needs of the core market. So I, I moved to US. Mm. Yeah, India was still like adopting CRM. It was at that stage where CRM was getting adopted. You needed customers who have already got CRM sorted and are looking at next level. Right, exactly right. And you were essentially the, the face of the company for customers like in terms of uh, leading the sales and uh, heading up U.S. sales. I I'm guessing the sales team would have been largely based in the U.S. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we uh, had a U.S. sales team. We, we had some marketing and SDR, BDR functions in India, but all sellers were in U.S. So, in fact, I was involved in every single deal as a founder seller in the first 50 customers. Uh, and then obviously started pulled back on founder selling and started to get more into, you know, have sales leaders, a VP of sales, and then you have customer success uh, teams and leadership. So it started more and more of the traditional uh, sales team structure. But all of that was built in the US, in the Bay Area. And you were uh, responsible for the fundraising also? Uh, Krishna was leading the charge on fundraising. I was in charge of revenue. So I had a revenue leadership role. Uh, I was tag teaming with Krishna. So we used to always pitch together, but uh, I was focusing on revenue and Krishna was focusing on uh, all the overall company building. Okay. 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 Uh, tell me that journey of pricing. Uh, you, you must have uh, like uh, gone through a journey to discover what is the right pricing. Like you initially started with a couple of dollars per onboarding done. And then once you 
pivoted into the sales model that what what was the pricing journey like yeah it was very clear to us that we wanted to do a per user saas subscription pricing like i think for our uh software the end users were sales reps and if you think about value based pricing a company with a larger sales team gets more value from identical than a smaller sales team so all that made sense uh, the model never got pushed back from customers what we did realize is this beautiful upsell model where you could start with a basic introductory starter pack with a startup and then you could upsell them on more sophisticated features like the video recordings and the ai so we actually went from you know like 15 dollars per user to 70 plus 75 dollars per user per month for a full featured product right so we were at this time also able to uh, triple our account size going from you know 11000 dollar average acv to 40000 plus acv uh, so yeah that was on account of adding more value to our products and customers appreciating how that impacted sales outcomes and that's where i say we had stayed in a hr centric software we have not been able to cross this journey which we've had uh, because we were tied to business outcomes and sales outcomes mm-hmm. okay so uh, around 2018 is when you kind of uh, moved out uh, at that stage what kind of uh, arr was mindicle at how much uh, fundraise had it done like wh- what was the state of the company at that stage yeah company was at series c stage and yeah we had raised you know, almost uh, 55 million dollars at that point and uh, yeah the company yeah this 55 million dollars is a pretty big amount uh, this is on the back of uh, that global opportunity like like investors would have been interested in mindicle as a global saas business yeah i'd say between 2014 and 18 we had established ourselves as a us centric business like 95% of business was coming from us right right okay mm-hmm. so at this point you know we didn't have to justify that it's a global company we were a us first company mm-hmm. right, right 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 and we were a us first company with a very efficient uh, cost model where we had a very strong team in india that could support everything from our customer success engineering product standpoint right support standpoint and then we had a front facing highly effective sales team in the us it's a marketing team in the us so we were also capital efficient not just growing fast not just a leader in our space as a first mover we were also very capital efficient so we got a lot of acknowledgement for being a leader early mover and being capital efficient mm. okay and then uh- what uh, what was uh, like what caused you to uh, move out when you had built it up from scratch so actually my role was that of a chief revenue officer at mindtable right founder cro is a very rare profile i would say in the tech industry right uh, generally cro's are career sales leaders who have started their journey in sales or customer success you know they've either gone from a cold caller to account seller to enterprise sales rep right they spent 20 years and then they've led teams regional rvp the vp of sales cro right so for me as a pure engineering pedigree having learned sales and driving revenue uh, vp of sales reporting to me like that was a very fast learning curve and it delivered that 
to the best of my abilities to a point where we were already talking about okay how many years to ipo how many years to 100 million arr what does this look like because now you're getting some very high quality investors with massive rounds of funding coming to the company and i think one question every founder should ask oneself is am i the right person for the role that i'm playing in the company and i honestly felt i had reached my level of incompetence when it comes to leading revenue as a cro of the company i had the opportunity to stay and be relevant as a chief strategy officer uh, that was a role that was being discussed we had just recently hired a president who was taking over day to day cro responsibilities from me because the board and i we felt like we need to take this company and unlock its full potential and need to get somebody seasoned somebody seasoned who has seen scale seen couple of 100 million of arr you know we were hiring career enterprise sales people right some of the sales reps we hired they themselves had single handedly carried tens of millions of dollars of quota and you know were reporting into me where i didn't have revenue leadership experience uh, i i felt like we needed somebody seasoned to come and take up this role and i also felt the value i would add once you know we basically ended up with five vps and one president taking over the responsibilities i was carrying at one point right so we hired really well you know, and i placed myself with very high quality talent uh so i i felt like it was time for me to also thinking about how and lock my own potential as a founder and go on the ceo route and see how i can uh, not only impact revenue but also impact product impact fundraising be at the helm of the company overall company building and not just revenue book of business building so i felt like that was the right decision and the right time to execute that decision and that brings us to the end of this conversation i want to ask you for a favor now did you like listening to the show i'd love to hear your feedback about it do you have your own startup ideas i'd love to hear them do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show i'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests write to me at ad@thepodium.in at that's ad@thepodium.in